What kind of strings does Bruce Springsteen use on his guitar? What about Jerry Garcia or Prince, three of the biggest grossing live entertainers of our generation? Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about guitar strings and equity. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. This ad is an invitation for people like you to show up, serve, and support your local public schools to shape our future from the inside. What is public education for? The answer to caring educators around the world is that it's for our students to build skills and connect with caring adults when they may not be able to go home to one. Join us in serving students in your community and help them see that people like them can care about learning and creating and that people like them can care about each other. While Bruce uses Diodario, Jerry used Vinci, and Prince used DR strings. And so the question is, if these three artists grossed more than a billion dollars in ticket sales during their career, what percentage of it ought to go to these guitar string companies? Because after all, without guitar strings, they're not really able to play. I got this question from a listener just a couple weeks ago. Hi, Seth. Eric from Nashville, Tennessee. Love the podcast and longtime fan of your work since I first pulled the Unleashing the Idea Virus at random off of Borders Books shelf as a senior in high school. Big impact on me at a crucial time in my life, and for that, I'll always be grateful. My question is about compensation. I work as a touring musician in Nashville, and wages for touring musicians have been stagnant for a long time, while the amount artists, especially big artists, makes on tours have gone through the roof. I'm not complaining. I know what I was signing up for, and I love my job. My question is, how do I add value and pay to a job with a fairly rigid job description? I have many side hustles that raise my income, like teaching, selling sounds that I've created for artists to others, and more, but is there a way to make a narrowly defined job pay more equitably when there's a long list of qualified people competing for it? Thanks so much. And I hear you, Eric. It is a totally legitimate question to ask, which is that if you are doing essential work, work that if you weren't there, it wouldn't happen and you're doing it in proximity to somebody who is creating a huge amount of value, in this case, measured through ticket sales, where is the equitable share to the person who's making it happen? But if we think about the guitar string companies, what artists say to the people who make guitar strings is not only will I not pay you a part of my income, you need to pay me to be on stage with me because your association with me creates value for you, I can get a different kind of guitar string. That most of us accept the fact that if we are, for example, going to a really important meeting, we don't pay more for the gas in our car or even the car we buy to get to the important meeting compared to getting to the laundromat because we live in a marketplace economy. And in a marketplace economy, it is up to the buyer to decide which option is best for them and up to the seller to compete with other sellers to get more sales. 
All of us do this all the time. But labor? Labor feels different because labor is personal, personal to us, not just the fact that we need the money to survive, but getting paid for our work is a form of dignity. And yes, we look for fairness and we look for something that feels like equity. And if you've been a hardworking person, whether you're in a coal mine or on stage at the Beacon Theater, and you haven't seen your wages go up, it's easy to become disheartened. It's easy to look at the situation that a market economy brings to bear and say, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right, and I don't feel seen and respected. And so the challenge, and this is what I wrote about in Lynchpin more than 10 years ago, and the challenge is this. When we live in a market economy where labor is something that is bought and sold, it tends to be that people exercise their privilege in that economy to sell what they want to sell and to buy what they want to buy. And just as Bruce isn't going to pay extra for his guitar strings, the person who is running a profitable business is not going to pay extra for the next employee because they need an employee who is good enough to do the labor as described. So what to do if we are a laborer? Well, something has shifted. Something has shifted dramatically in our lifetime. Actually, two things. The first one is this. Physical proximity to the work to be done is not nearly as important as it used to be. If I ran a mill in a small mill town and I needed mill workers in order to make the fabric, the number of workers that was available to me was constrained. And therefore, if business started going well, if there was competition for certain people to work, I would have to raise wages. Wages tend to be sticky compared to other forms of fungible commodities because the people who are doing the hiring are hesitant to increase wages because information flow is not complete because people want to keep their job. It is not an efficient market. But it is also true that wages will go up if more demand exists than there are people willing to work. Because if you need someone to work for you, you will increase the wages you are willing to pay until they reach the marginal benefit that that person is adding. If you've got a machine and it's sitting idle, isn't making you anything, but when it's working, you make $50 for every hour it's working, you're willing to pay up to $50 an hour to get someone to run that machine. Oh, mill work ain't easy. Mill work ain't hard. Mill work, it ain't nothing but an awful boring job. Here's the second thing that happened. In addition to physical proximity, we ended up atomizing and describing contributions that were made by labor, much more precisely. It used to be we need a craftsperson to work in this factory, in this spot. Now we can say, I need this batch of items processed in exactly this way by this machine. Time and motion studies helped corporations factory owners figure out exactly how much they should pay someone and exactly what they should be doing. Well, the combination of these two things 
led to outsourcing. It led to the gig economy. You don't need to hire a chauffeur if you can just press a button and have Uber or Lyft show up. You rent that chauffeur for 30 minutes, and then they're not your problem anymore. And what Uber and Lyft do is disintermediate in the sense that you don't have to go find exactly who you're going to hire. They are a different kind of middle person, and the drivers essentially are bidding against each other because if they're not willing to work for the prevailing wage, they don't get a gig. Now, what we see here is that workers have two choices. One choice is to band together. If all the drivers who could possibly work for Uber or Lyft banded together, the price all of us would pay for an Uber would dramatically increase and the money would go to the drivers. But if they don't know each other, if they don't coordinate their work, if they are being treated as separate individuals, they will always lose because they cannot create an oligopoly. They cannot work together to force the price up. So as long as there's a never-ending flow of people willing to drive, the wages are always going to be lower. And the same thing's true for the person who's willing to go on the road with Neil Young or Sly and the Family Stone or anybody else, which is if you can play the keyboards and you play them exactly as written, the same way everybody else does, then the purchaser decides it's going to be fungible, all the same. When you buy a bag of beans, they're sold by weight, not by the bean, because all the beans are the same. Which leads to the second alternative labor has, which is to become indispensable, the one and only. The thing is, there's a certain kind of wah-wah pedal that Jerry Garcia used. And if the price of that wah-wah pedal went up, he would pay it because there wasn't an alternative. And so there's two kinds of labor. There's the labor that can be done by anybody with a certain skill set, of which there are lots of people. And then what we're looking for is the information flow. Who's available? Who knows about this gig? The person who's hiring wants the maximum number of people to apply because the more fair and open and efficient the market is, the less they have to pay. On the other hand, the worker doesn't benefit from the rise of information because it means more people are aware of the job and there's less of a sinecure. But if there's a one and only, if you want Chip Kidd to design your book cover, if you want Debbie Millman to consult on the design of your brand voice, if you want Bernadette Jiwa to help you with the story that you are trying to develop, you don't have any alternatives at all because you picked the one and only. They bring something distinctive to the table. And thus, their wages are not in an auction where the lowest bidder gets the gig. They're the one and only. And so as we move to this new gig economy where more and more people are working remotely, where more and more jobs are getting broken into tiny bits to be done by the cheapest available human or computer, the way forward is to be one worth seeking out. It might be your reputation. It might be that knowing that Bernie Worrell is on keyboards makes it more likely that someone's going to come to the concert. Oh, yeah. 
or it might be that you actually have a distinct set of skills and experiences that almost nobody else has. And it might be that you bring a sort of emotional labor to the table. Emotional labor is a term that's more than 60 years old. Ariel Hochschild wrote about it in the 1960s, which is the effort expended by a service worker to display emotion they don't feel in the moment. And when she wrote about it, she was talking about how enervating it was for a flight attendant to pretend to be happy to see you when they were exhausted. But I've turned emotional labor around and said emotional labor is the privilege that a worker has to bring a sort of affect to the table, to bring optimism and connection and charisma and possibility and energy, which is hard for many other people to produce on demand. This emotional labor, this effort, this willingness to lean into the work that feels hard is in fact scarce. And if it's scarce, then you as the worker have accomplished something, which is you've put yourself into a smaller category. So Eric, I would argue that if I was putting together a touring band, one of the things I'm looking for is skill, but just as much I'm looking for, are they fun to be with on the tour bus? Do they create positive energy on the stage? Are they reliable and show up for every gig on time? Are they enthusiastic? Do they encourage me to push? You get the idea. All of these things is how a certain kind of gig worker gets picked by name the next time. And that's where this all comes to in the end. Who's going to ask for you by name? Who's going to be disappointed if they have to go to the next person on the list? How do we choose a career, choose something that we produce where it's not easy to do specifically what we do? Because if you have been seduced by the education industrial complex into doing what's on the test, into fitting into the box, into being someone who has deniability about their work because you're meeting spec, well, then you've set yourself up to be a fungible commodity. And in a free market, that's always going to be undervalued from the point of view of someone seeking dignity and respect and a fair wage. But the alternative, at least until we get to the point where the government is ensuring that there is a floor so that the work that you are doing gets paid a fair wage, the alternative is to be the one and only, to figure out how to show up with a bucket of emotional labor and skill that makes it easy for someone to say, this one, this person is the one that's hard to live without. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, 
I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode or anything that's on your mind, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can even upload an ad for a hobby, a cause you care about, something that's interesting and non-commercial. Three questions this week, and I think it's fair to say they're the most varied set of questions we've ever covered. Here we go. Hey, Seth, this is Jeff in Sacramento, California. And here's my question in a recent podcast. You talked about the idea of modern monetary theory, the idea that now we have money that is no longer connected to a standard like gold or something like that. It kind of is whatever we make it. However, with the massive rise in inflation, I'm wondering if you would address the concept that, yes, money may be an idea that is um, something that we make up and believe in, and it's a story we tell ourselves, but if that story becomes something that no one believes in anymore, that we're in trouble as a society. Thanks so much. Uh, Love the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. You've made the core of my point already, which is that money truly is a story. Gold was also a story because gold isn't worth anything anyway. The story of money is super complicated and gets even more complicated when we add inflation. If people think that prices are going to go up, prices sometimes go up not because they understand monetary theory, not because they have any insight into quantitative easing. It's just part of their story. And inflation is a real challenge because inflation is contagious and inflation can scale. The inflation that we are facing in this moment of 2022 is a different kind of inflation than most people in my country are used to. It is not an inflation caused by monetary theory or even technology. It was inflation caused by a significant multi-year disruption to the supply chain and the labor markets. And in the face of that, some companies couldn't afford to sell what they wanted to sell at the price they were used to selling it. Some workers decided it wasn't worth going to work, risking their life and their dignity for the pay that they had been receiving. And in the face of both of those things, an inflationary moment occurred, different than we are used to. And one of the things that happened is that corporations holding a meeting said, look, we can't sell this for $3 anymore. We got to raise the price. We got to raise the price to $3.10 or we're going to lose money. And somebody 
probably an MBA, spoke up and said, well, if we're going to raise the prices to 310, why don't we just raise the prices to 320 instead? Because if you're used to making a nickel a product at $3 and you raise the price to 310 to still make a nickel and you figure out how to go to 320, you just tripled your profits in one meeting. And it turns out that much of the rise in prices around us has been caused by corporations using the shift, the change, the quotes about the supply chain to dramatically increase their profits. And unless you have a true monopoly, this cannot stand. That over time, this will fade away because people are smart and they will look for options and they will choose to pay less if two things are similar. But you're hinting at a bigger issue, which is when we start realizing that there are lots of forms of exchange, not just US dollars, the story of the US dollar starts to shift. And this is some of the nonsense around NFTs or various cryptocurrencies that, again, people don't understand but profit from, and they are playing with them. And if people come to believe that they are better off putting their money into a digital ledger than they are into a home or into certain kinds of productive activities, then they will. And that story will gain in traction. The purpose of me ranting about this isn't because I know how to fix the story. It's because we need to be aware that we're telling ourselves a story. And if the story isn't working, we should tell ourselves a different story. Hey, Seth. This isn't a question about your most recent episode, but it has been on my mind given a project I've been working on and the conflicts that are arising. I would like to know what you think about sweat equity versus financial contributions to a project. It seems that some people have a very skewed view towards what money brings versus expertise, experience, and passion. I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts on this. Thank you. Thank you for this, Shelley. There are two parts to your question that I'm hearing. Maybe I'm just making this up. The first one is about respect and, again, dignity, which is if the person with money is showing up and disrespecting the person who's putting in effort, it makes it hard to put in effort. That money talks for sure because there is, as we just discussed, a story about it that's fairly universal. But the real question to be asked here, the one that can address the personal question is this. Can you build the entity you are seeking to build without the people, without the sweat, without the insight? Next, can you build it without the money? If you can build it without the money, go build it without the money and dismiss the person who's giving you a hard time about sweat equity. On the other hand, if money can buy you the effort from somebody else, it might be easier to raise money and spend it to hire somebody than it is to guess at how much that person who's not getting paid should own in the thing that's ultimately being built. That when we are building something in a capital-based society, well, then capital is at some level the key measurement of what is being built. So we're seeing examples of companies with just a couple dozen people that are worth billions of dollars. It is possible to build a company like WhatsApp 
or MailChimp with very, very little cash. I call that bootstrapping. And the bootstrapping workshop is something I'm really proud to have built. The bootstrapping is the idea that you can use sweat equity to see what people need, not a lot of people, just enough people, that they need so badly that they will pay you up front for you to go build it for them and with them. Well, in that case, there is no outside investor. Your customers are your investors. But let's say that's not the case. Let's say you're trying to build some sort of tech company. Well, you have two choices. You can find people who are going to work, quote, for free in exchange for owning a piece of what they built, and then you don't need to raise very much money at all. Or you can raise a whole bunch of money and then go pay workers what they need to be paid in cash because our labor has value and we have figured out how to value it. And if an investor is willing to take more of a risk than an employee, then that's your choice. So I don't think there's a moral answer to this question. I think it's simply a choice. Hey, Seth. Uh, I just got a product that came with some stickers, and it occurred to me that stickers are just this excellent form of people like us do things like this marketing. Um, And it just occurred to me that, uh, to my knowledge, I've never heard you talk about stickers. Um, So I just wanted your thoughts on stickers. (laughs) Um, And uh, thanks for all you do. Thanks for this, Nathan. It is correct that I have never spoken of stickers. I vividly remember the sticker that I had on the car I could ill afford in 1983. I was a beta tester for the original Mac, and there was an apple on the back of my car. And I remember people honking and waving as they drove by. A dear friend of mine has an entire wall of his room, top to bottom, covered with hundreds and hundreds of stickers from a variety of products. I remember years ago, the day that I was sitting in Colorado where I met Jacqueline Novogratz and where I met Joey Ito. And I looked at Joey's laptop and it was covered with stickers, which in those days was sacrilegious. Your laptop was supposed to be pure. Stickers have several functions. The first one, if the first one isn't true, the second one doesn't occur. The first one is they are a form of identity. They are somebody putting something on something they care about to say, this is me. It's not just people like us do things like this. It's I am people like us, period. This is my flag. I am wearing this hat, this jacket, these pants. You can tell which tribe, which cohort, which cadre I'm in because I have chosen to wear the sticker. That's not easy to do. The reason it's not easy to do is not because stickers are expensive. It's because most people don't want to identify with what you made that if you're going to sell me average stuff for average people, why on earth would I want to wear a sticker celebrating that fact? No, what's on offer here with a sticker that works is somebody choosing to affiliate themselves in public with you because it raises their status, because it gives them a sense of affiliation. And then, yes, the second part is when we see others with the sticker We want one too. But the only way to get a sticker without being a fraud is to engage with what the sticker is celebrating. And so I think the punchline of the question is, what could you do to make a product or service that's sticker worthy? What does it mean to be sticker worthy? That someone wants 
to where that thing raised that flag. And the second half of it is that when others see it, when they see the person who's got the sticker, what do they want to do after they see it? Do they want to join in? Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.